morning, guys. My name is Michael Abel. I'm going to be reading out of the book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Jesus and Nicodemus. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. Nicodemus asked, how is it possible for an adult, adult to be born? It's impossible to enter the mother's womb a second time and be born, isn't it? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. God's Spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. It's the same with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, how are these things possible? Jesus answered, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? I assure you that we speak about what we do know and testify what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the human one. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up, so that everyone believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into our world so to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged. Whoever doesn't believe in him is already judged because they don't believe in the name of God's only son. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world, and people love darkness more than the light, for their actions are evil. All who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God. Thanks, Michael. Good morning, church. We're going to jump into uh, John chapter 3. We're going to continue our series through the gospel uh, of John. So I'd love for you to open up your own Bible so that you can put your eyes on this. Uh, as we've been walking through this, uh, the scriptures aren't going to be on the screen. We're kind of pushing each other, challenging each other to actually be in the word ourselves. So you can get on your phone with your Bible app, or you can uh, go to a, a website on your phone, or we have Bibles in the back area here. And uh, if we could turn the lights up just a little so we can see the word, that'd be, that'd be great. Um, I've got these new glasses, too, this week. First time I'm preaching, and um, I had an eye exam a couple weeks ago, and uh, this week they came in, and I was actually, I was pretty giddy about going to get new glasses. That's what it's come to in life for me, I guess. At 49 is excitement to get new eyeglasses. But here's the cool thing is, they're progressives. I can see my scripture, and I can actually see you this morning as well. Usually, you're very blurry out there, but uh, I'm excited. I don't know. Maybe I don't want to see what I look at out there. I'm like, oh, that person's sleeping. I couldn't see that. Am I there? I don't know. I don't know. But let's look at this story uh, about Nicodemus who comes to Jesus seeking. This is really important that we understand this, that Nicodemus comes seeking. Come seeking. 
How long has it been for you as a believer where you have come to Jesus seeking? We come a lot as Christians knowing, or at least we declare we're knowing. We show up in the church thinking, I already, already know this. How, how long has it been since you've come to Jesus seeking? Jesus, fill me. Jesus, speak to me. Jesus, show me something new. Well, that's what we get. And you might think, well, 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 I'm a Christian, you know, I accepted Jesus into my heart, right? I've got kind of this years of being in the church or being in this, you know, if you want to call it religious uh, culture. Guess what? So did Nicodemus, big time. And we'll discover that as well. The first thing we want to look at is this first verse we just read. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. Now, this is important just to set the context of what's going on. Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a leader of the Jewish people. Now, let's understand what a Pharisee is real quick. In brief, you could say a Pharisee is a religious leader who is a protector of the law, right? A protector of the Torah, or you might call it the first five books of the Bible where the law was given. And this is the Jewish culture. This is the Hebrew, Israelite, Jewish. This is what they know about God and how they're supposed to live out their relationship with God. It shows up in the law. So the Pharisees were the protectors of the law. They were looking at the law and they were saying, this is what God handed to us. This is how we should live. This is how we're going to know God. It's how he'll know us. And so we got to make sure we protect this. Why were they needing to protect it? Well, there was groups, even religious groups, that were getting to the point where they're like, man, we've had this a long time. And we're still under oppression. This time we're under oppression to Romans. We're not quite sure this law stuff actually plays out. Or maybe we misinterpreted. Or maybe it's kind of like it's changed for our current day. And there was groups that were moving away from the understanding of the law. The Pharisees were trying to protect the law. They were also the judicial authority for the law. Which means if people violated the law, it was the Pharisees of the religious leaders, they were the one tasked to going and saying, you're wrong, you're in violation of the law. And often it meant they would have to, to send somebody to cleanse themselves, right? Simple as that. But it went up much higher. Every once in a while it involved uh, some type of punishment, physical or even death. Now there's a whole procedure about how the Pharisees would carry out that type of punishment. Sometimes they followed it, we see in the Gospels. Sometimes they did not follow it. But they see themselves as protectors of the law, and they have judicial authority, like the judicial branch as we know it, right, in our system. That would have been the Pharisees. Here's one more little tidbit you may not know. The Pharisees, if you think of the temple we studied last week, and all the religious leaders that might be in the temple, or think about it as church today and pastors that might be in a church, the Pharisees were religious leaders whose main job was outside of the temple building. Their main job was to go and be among the people in everyday culture. Now, they were doing the two things we just said, protectors and, and judges, but they were doing it outside the temple and so they were the ones most with the people, which would make sense. When you're reading the Bible, you're reading the Gospels, especially John, 
This is the group you're going to come across the most, the Pharisees. Why? Because Jesus is always among the people. And so the Pharisees are always right there. Everywhere he goes, they're there. Now, Nicodemus, it says, was a leader as well. So it wasn't just this large group who kind of bought into pharisaical thought. He was actually a leader among them. Most likely, he was probably a member of a council that was known as the Sanhedrin or the governing authority with the Pharisees. And so he had a prominent leadership spot. What did Jesus just do last week where all these religious leaders saw, right? He cleared the temple. Do you remember that? He made whips. He knocked over tables. He drove out cattle, cleared it all out. And the religious leaders, all kinds of religious leaders were there, right? Pharisees would have been there because it was the start of Passover as well. That's what they've just seen Jesus do. So you have to understand, it would not have been a very easy thing for a religious leader like Nicodemus, a Pharisee, to just come up and have like casual conversation with Jesus. And so what do we see here? We see in verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. Now remember, in Scripture, in, in the Gospels especially, Anyone who had followers was a teacher or a rabbi. That's the word most often used, a rabbi. So anyone was a rabbi. So like Stephanie, Stephanie, sitting right next to her, both of you are rabbis in that definition because you're teachers, you have students. I don't know if they follow you around outside of school, so it might be a little weird. But, oh, they do? Okay. So, but you're teachers. That would have been the understanding and definition here as well. So he says, hey, rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God because no one can do the miraculous signs or the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, remember, up till now, Jesus is not out there like publicly healing people all over the place. The only real miracle we've seen up till now is the wedding in Cana that we studied a couple weeks ago. But Jesus is out there speaking. He's connecting himself to the Old Testament. He's doing certain things. John the Baptist has already testified to him in these areas. Not to mention that at the very end of the, this book of John we're studying, in the last couple verses, we get this declaration from John, or the writer of John, that many, many more things Jesus did are not recorded uh, in this book because there wouldn't be room, is basically what he's saying. So clearly Jesus has been doing things that even the religious leaders go, Man, this is more than just commonplace here. So Nicodemus comes at night, acknowledges the significance of Jesus, or at least some level of it. Why at night would he come? Well, probably uh, he could have been losing his reputation. It could have been that he might have been in a little bit of danger if he had come during the day. Um, because it wouldn't have been popular for a religious leader to spend time with Jesus. So under the disguise of darkness, he comes to Jesus. Jesus is also not with people in the evening, or not so much in the evening time. Now, clearly, he comes as a seeker, because if he had come as an accuser of Jesus, well, he would have come in the daytime. He would have wanted a crowd in place to accuse Jesus, to try to trap Jesus or anything like that. He comes seeking and this is what Jesus says to him. Take a look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. 
Listen, we're 200 or 2,000 years on the other side. So you know the term being born again, right? You know it really well. In fact, you probably have such a grasp and handle on born again, right, from a contemporary standpoint that you probably don't even have the proper definition of it because we've kind of morphed it and twisted it to the point where we say, are you born again? Yes, I said a prayer one time and I accepted Jesus into my heart. It was a great night. I'm born again. Jesus would have no understanding of that. That's not what he was talking about here. And Nicodemus certainly wouldn't have grasped that because he doesn't even grasp the literal Jesus is talking about here. Jesus says, I assure you, if someone is born anew, it's not possible for them to see God's kingdom. Listen, we've already talked in terms that God's kingdom is not referring simply to heaven. It is the real presence of God anywhere. The presence of God. And to be able to see that and experience that, someone has to be born anew. Now, there's a couple different words in the Greek for being born again, right? One would be what you're thinking, born again, like you gave birth, right? And one would mean like, oh, like you changed your mind. So what do we see here? We actually see this term here. I put it in your notes this morning, geneo anoa. And it actually means born again, but it is the one that means fathering a child is what it means. Or siring a child is the literal definition there. That, that you actually, from you, gave birth. So it's not simply a change your mind. Or think about it this way. Not simply change your perspective, but actually being born again. Being completely born anew. I mean, Jesus is challenging the religious leader who is the most skilled in knowledge of the Bible. Maybe only the group known as the scribes might know the Bible better than the Pharisees, but they're both way up there. And Jesus is challenging this person who likely had the Old Testament, you know, that big chunk of your Bible, likely had it memorized, knew how to interpret the law, knew how to look at somebody and let them know if they were in violation of the law or not, then knew how to tell them to go find cleansing if they were in violation. And Jesus is looking at this person and saying to them, you need to be born again. You need to start completely over in God. Does that make any sense to a Pharisee? And and is that not incredibly offensive to a Pharisee? It would be like you coming to me today and saying, Pastor, you... You need to be born again in all your Christianity stuff. You don't know what you're talking about. I mean, we might, my initial response might be like, okay, what? Let, let's go sit and have coffee and talk about this. So I don't know where you're coming from. That's this, what's going on. Nicodemus says, thinking quite literally, how is it possible an adult to be born again? Is, is it possible to enter the mother's womb? Clearly, Nicodemus understood the word he was saying. Clearly, Nicodemus knew he wasn't just saying, hey, change your perspective. If you just change your perspective, then you're born again. He understood what Jesus was saying, that you had to be born again. Jesus is using literal terms for being born again. Nicodemus said, it's not even possible. What are you talking about? Then Jesus gives us the understanding of that that two-level teaching that we've talked about, the literal that's also spiritual. Verse 5, Jesus answered, I I assure you, unless somebody is what? Born of water and the Spirit, it's not possible to enter the kingdom, God's kingdom. 
Now Jesus is pushing into something else. Clearly, it's not just the literal of the word that Jesus is using because now he's speaking of the spirit here as well. Being born of water and of the spirit is not possible to enter God's kingdom. Now, there's a, a lot of interpretations that are thrown around on this. Born of water and spirit, meaning maybe born of water like a physical birth and then later on a spiritual birth. Possible, many uh, biblical scholars would go that way. Some others turn it into a practical, and we think in terms of unless you're born of water, meaning unless you are baptized with water and the Spirit, and then have some later second pouring out of the Spirit in your, in your life, it's possible. Some biblical scholars interpret that that way. But let's look at it in the context of the passage, what we've been studying up till now. What did John come to offer? We studied in chapter 1 when we talked about John's baptism. John came to offer a baptism by water, a cleansing, a making new. John's baptism was this, wash away the old and prepare yourself for the new God wants to bring to your life. And then John points to Jesus and he says, that is the one who will baptize you in the spirit. That is the new that my baptism has been prepping you for the new that is in the spirit that Jesus has to offer. When we look at it in context of John chapter 1 and then chapter 3 here, we see Jesus is really just saying the same thing. Being born of the water, that the water is being emptying the old life, and the spirit is the offering of the new or the receiving of the new life. That's really what we talk about when we talk about the, the symbol of baptism or the ritual of baptism that somebody goes down and they're washed and they come and they're prepared for the new. And then they say, I want to move forward with Jesus as the Lord of my life. And Jesus offers the spirit to help us live out that new life. And Jesus is referring to this. Emptying of the old life, receiving new life is what the water and the spirit has to offer. Remember in John chapter 20, verse 23, or 22, Jesus comes to his disciples, says that he breathed on them and said, what? Receive the Holy Spirit. We actually get that type of understanding here. You must be born of God's Spirit. It blows wherever it wishes. Why? Because that word for spirit and breathe and wind. In Hebrew, it's all the same word. It's used almost interchangeably to describe these different things. Wind, breath, spirit. And Jesus is tapping into this so that we understand what he's offering. It is not simply that going underwater and being washed in this ritual and coming up and we say, hey, I was baptized, I'm ready to go. I said the prayer a couple weeks ago. Then I got, you know, it took me a couple weeks to get the family together and then we did the baptism. It's not simply that ritual, though it's powerful, it is this new life in the Spirit that Jesus offers. For many people, it is almost like this. It's almost like they've still lived in John's version of baptism, where they were washed, but never stepped forward into the new life Jesus has to offer. It's new life. And I wonder for you, I just, if you ask yourself the question, like, do I experience 
the life Jesus has to offer as I read about it in God's word, as I see what it is, is that the kind of life I live? Have I received that as well? As I shared before, I think we get so caught up in our contemporary world, our contemporary church thought, in what does the church has to offer me? What does the kids' programs have to offer my kids? What does the youth program have to offer? Are there fun things the church does around here? Did I like the music today? What does the music have to offer me? Did the sermon keep me going? That kind of thing. Whereas in reality, the best starting point and the biblical starting point for the Lord's house is to come and offer myself to the Lord and then receive of him the life he wants to give us. I don't think there's ever been a person who's come and offered themselves to the Lord in any setting where God just said, not interested. Go on on your way. And God always wants to meet us and to offer us new life. Well, let's understand a little bit what Jesus' testimony here in this next section. Now, there's a lot in here, and this is actually, there's a lot of theological implication in this text. We just wouldn't have time in one sermon to go through it all. I want to encourage you, study a little bit more of John chapter 3, these first half especially, on your own this week in your, in your own devotion. And what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to send you an email tomorrow for the Monday Minute, and I'm going to give you a couple links of places you can go to do further study on this passage. Let's understand in verse 11 what Jesus is saying here. He says, I assure you that we speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen. Now, Jesus is basically saying, listen, I've actually experienced this. I've seen this from God. And that is what I give testimony to, what he's speaking of. And he says, look, if I told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Remember, he's speaking to a religious leader when he talks this way to them. I'm trying to just speak to you even about earthly. You don't even get it. How can, how can I really open up the full earthly concept or heavenly concepts to you? He says, no one's gone up to heaven except for the one that came down from heaven. And who does he say that is? The human one. Or maybe your translation says the son of man in there. And basically the son of man, that's a term that's used uh, in several places in the Bible. It hasn't always referred uh, to Jesus. Jesus is taking this one, and he's taking this phrase, the son of man, as if to say this is somebody who has come from God with a purpose. And Jesus is describing himself as that. And he's the only one he's saying here. And then he gets uh, a, a, a little weird for us but very clever for this religious leader. Take a look at verse 14. It says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one, the Son of Man, be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Did you catch that? Does that make a lot of sense to you there? Well, if you look back in Numbers chapter 21 and read this section, you'll actually see, and it's fairly brief, about nine verses, where you understand this story. The people had disobeyed God, and God allowed the snakes to come out of the wilderness. And many of the snakes actually bit people, and people died, right? And so then Moses repented on behalf of the people. He cried out to God, 
asking for, for repentance on the people. And here's what God did. He said, make for yourself a, a stick with a snake on it, like a bronze snake on it. And hold that up. And if somebody, if anyone is now bit by one of those snakes, they can come and they can look upon this stick or this bronze snake and they'll be healed. Weird story, right? But it's set up so that Jesus could describe what he would be. Like just in this same way that people afflicted by these snakes that would bring death are able to look upon this stick that's being held up, so too Jesus would go to the cross and be held up. And that if people would just come and they would look on him, if they would come and in understanding us, if they would come and believe in him, have faith in him, they would find healing as well. He puts it in this term, eternal life which the actual phrase is everlasting life, which some of your translations actually say. We think of eternal life in terms of it's heaven. One day I will die and I'll go to heaven. They viewed everlasting life, eternal life, as life that would never end. Even from the moment of belief, life would happen. In that story in the wilderness, it's not like they said, hey, (laughs) look at the bronze snake. And even though you've been bit, you're going to die, but it's going to, you know, on the other side, it's going to work out for you. They were healed. It's the same thing. The life that Jesus has to offer for somebody who believes right here and right now, that is what Jesus is saying in me. So let's step back before we finish this. He's talking to a religious leader who knows the Bible better than anyone else. In fact, if you talked to a religious leader like a Pharisees and you were trying to explain the Bible, they'd probably just roll their eyes. They might do one of those things where they just kind of are polite and nod their head, but inside they're like, what, what are you trying to do? I know this stuff. I know this stuff better than you. This is a religious leader who knows this inside out. And here's Jesus speaking to him. And he's saying, listen, you got it wrong. It is in me and believing in me that all you have hoped would come about in this, that's how it's going to come about. But in order for that to happen, you're going to have to completely restart, completely be born again. When I think about us today, when I think about our Christianity, I wonder if it's not been so much of a born again, but attaching to what was already there. I mean, like when we think about terms of born again, I think about like my selfishness where I seek for me or my immediate family first in almost all ways. The concept of being born again would think, I don't think of myself first. I actually look and I think of others. And it starts to show up in ways. Like being uh, over here, I think of my, like, you could think of in terms of lust, Oh, but being born again is like, man, I'm going to deal with that lust. I'm going to get rid of that. I'm going to attack that that's been a problem. Like born again is a restart, it's a refresh entirely. And I think for some of us who are believers in Christ, we need to revisit that concept of being born again. 
Jesus has this last section here <coughs> where he says, he talks about judgment here, the second to the last. And I want to share with you just what he's getting at. Take a look at verse 17. God didn't send his son in the world to what? To judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged, but whoever doesn't believe him is already judged because they don't believe in the name of God's only son. We don't understand what Jesus is saying because this is a popular phrase that we say often. You know, don't judge me. Don't judge. You know, that kind of stuff. And it's true. In this sense, what we understand about Jesus is that he did not come into the world for the purpose of judging the world. That's not why he's here on earth to judge. He is here to offer salvation, not judgment, to offer salvation. But don't get confused that there's not a judgment to come and that Jesus is not involved in that judgment. It is like Jesus is saying, this is the time to offer salvation, not judgment. I wonder for you and I, when we think of our world, I wonder if we would be better equipped to share Jesus with people in our world if we thought, wow, Jesus came to offer salvation now, judgment's coming later. I wonder if I spend time offering salvation and quit offering judgment, if people might see Jesus clearer. So that's what Jesus says he came. But Jesus said, listen, some in verse 19 through 20 they liked the light, the light, but they preferred the darkness instead. In a way, Jesus is just saying, listen, the only judgment that comes now is if you yourself choose not to walk in the light. You, it's like you judge yourself if you choose not to follow Jesus or follow the light. And I wonder for us, too, even as believers, I wonder if there's times where I'm like, like, we disregard these verses because we thought, you know, I'm a Christian. I said a prayer. I'm, I'm come to church. But in reality, like, we're choosing darkness at times. We're choosing things that aren't Jesus at times. Here's what simply loving the light means. We see it in verse 21. It's walking with Jesus. That's what loving the light is. And look at verse 21. It actually says that this is proved out by our actions. That we're following Jesus is actually proved out in our actions. Here's the takeaway this morning. The first one was, would be from the, the washing of water. Have you washed away your past? Is that something you allowed Jesus to come and to wash that away? Are you daily receiving Jesus new? I put daily in on purpose that we would understand every day we need to come before Jesus and be renewed. Are there actions in your life that need to change that you might experience? I don't know about you, but if there's one thing as a pastor for years and years that I've struggled, or maybe you go so far as a pastor to say, and I'm tired of, it would be Christians who aren't experiencing the life Jesus has to offer because it's freely given, freely there. And I wonder if at the core, it's simply that we're not offering ourselves to him. I wonder if the core, if it's 
we're not becoming like Nicodemus, where we're still seeking Jesus daily today. I wonder if we're just living in something we used to know, or maybe even something we felt at a time, and yet it's available, even today. Let's pray. Father, my prayer as we close is just simply this, that everyone in here would offer themselves to you this morning, that everyone would understand that you have life to offer, and you want them to walk out and experience that. And we need to seek you every day for it, in your word, spending time with you, to receive from you. That no matter how much we sing about pouring out your Holy Spirit, it requires our heart being open and ready. So, Lord, lead us in that direction, we pray. In your son's name, amen.